ladies and gentlemen, we are 89.9 KMOJ. Today's R&B and throwbacks. We interrupt the special programming right now. Our general manager and host of Freddie Bell and Chantel Sings in the Morning has stepped in the studio with a special guest, Unlimited, sir. Thank you so much for enjoying. It's our pleasure. It's an unusual takeover, Glenn, so we apologize. And also <laughs> no. we send word down the line to Zany K. This is his show. And uh, I know I can just see him on the monitor here wondering what's going on, but uh, that's okay. We have the pleasure of being uh, live in the studio this morning. One of the first times that I was telling Governor Tim Walls as we walked in that this is the first interview that we've done live uh, since COVID and, we, and the shutdown a year ago. I'm just curious, uh, how has your life changed in the last year, just briefly if you don't mind, about COVID and how your life has changed since we've been on the lockdown and now starting to find our way back. Well, it, first of all, it's, it's getting better. I'm here today. This is one <laughs> of my first live interviews in uh, in studio and uh, certainly good to be on KOMJ. It's changed. I'm, I, you know, one of the things in this, this job is truly to represent the people and to do that, you need to be in community. And I think one of the things is, is that COVID made that much more challenging. And then of course the, the challenges that COVID brought, um, the challenges of, of addressing race as we have since the murder of George Floyd has made that somewhat challenging. So I have to tell you right now, just being able to get out, I was just down at Sammy's to have a sandwich oh my. And, and we're all, we're going to spend a little time and then stopping in and talking to you. This is what we're, this is what the job is. So let's talk about that. Everyone, we're talking live with Governor Tim Walls live in our studios at KMOJ. Let's go back a year ago. Uh, when Where were you? What was going on when you first got the information that a difficult situation had taken place over in South Minneapolis involving four Minneapolis police officers in South Minneapolis. Yeah, of course, it was uh, the holiday weekend and um, something that had been going on for a uh, a few weeks at my house. There was just an impromptu band would get in front of my house and they would they would play the Minnesota Rouser and they'd play some music. These were just nice people for our family. You know, we were kind of isolated in the house there. And mm-hmm. so I was sitting out on my steps. And, and after they'd get done, we would, you know, from a distance talk to one another. And I remember one of them mentioned and said they, that something really bad happened. And, and I hadn't yet received, you know, I don't get the official updates from Commissioner Harrington and the BCA on everything that had happened. But people were already talking about it. And I remember thinking... Um, well, of course, this is a tragic situation. We hadn't heard all the details, but it, it struck me now and then a year later how quickly that group of folks had already been picking up on it. It was moving through mm-hmm. the community, if you will. Society was talking about it already. That it was, And as it turned out, it, it, it was something different. And I hope, as Reverend Sharpton said yesterday, it's not George Floyd the martyr. It's George Floyd the changemaker. And maybe that's... When I look back on it, it felt like those guys knew right then, those, those folks playing the trumpet. It's really changed the, the culture of uh, civil and, and justice, just humanity in our communities. So what is the biggest change or the biggest learning? I know you're on the north side, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that you're here on the north side physically because of the anniversary. Is that, is that right? Yeah, and trying to get out and just spend some time, and it, it's... Um, it's listening. And for me, you know, I, I knew I have much to learn. I took this job. You're learning every day. I, I came in here when I was running to listen because there's, you know, your listeners uh, have a different life experience than me. I'm a, a white guy from, from rural America has a little different life experience and you need to hear if you're going to be the governor, you need to represent folks. And I think for me over this last year is, is just seeing that kind of disconnect that people have with others' lives, not out of a sense of malice, but just out of a sense of not living it in ignorance. I was, I was amazed 
coming leading into the the verdict on Derek Chauvin, the white people I spoke to were absolutely convinced. Of course, they did a wonderful job. He's going to be convicted. This is cut and dry. Mm-hmm. And every single black person I talked to said, "Yeah, but that doesn't mean he's going to be convicted. That it was cut and dry." Right. And that disconnect of life experiences. And I think over this last year of knowing that that our state has work to do. I have work to do. Mm-hmm. to get out and listen. And then one of the things in this is, is to try and convey that to folks, folks who I think want to get this right, but just don't understand. Well, what is the big deal? You know, just just listen to the police when they pull you over. You know, how do you take the politics out of civil and human rights? Well, I think it's hard, but I think you said it there. I think you have to go back to that shared humanity. I think that's the fix for so many things that we're all in this together and try and make it feel like I, I think every mother felt that when George Floyd called for his mom. And I mm-hmm. think every mother sees himself in Katie Wright. And and I think that part of it starts to break down some of the barriers that, that Katie Wright's not asking for anything special. She's asking, why do we have laws that put her son in a situation where he got killed over something as small as a traffic ticket or, or a, you know, a misdemeanor warrant? Right. And I think that starts to, to take some of it out. I'm not naive. People fall back into their political kind of trenches. Mm-hmm. But if you get to the point where everybody sees themselves and that, that Dante Wright is the same age as my child, um, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. makes it a lot more personal. Everyone, we're talking with Governor Tim Walz. It's 10 minutes past the hour. Keith Ellison was the lead prosecutor on the, uh, the case involving Derek Chauvin, the first of three officers. And now we understand that he will be, uh, you mentioned Dante Wright, he will be the lead prosecutor there. That is setting a new precedent in, in the way that cases like this across the country are being tried. Did you have that mindset of changing the, the narrative when you asked Keith Ellison to take on this task? Well, first of all, um, I believe everybody's at a point for reason that there's bigger plan than each of us. Uh, Keith Ellison being where he's at is the best blessing that Minnesota could have. I think he's... Um, We're talking about the Attorney General. Attorney I'm sorry. Attorney General, yeah, <laughs> as, a, as a voice for this. And, and I think one of the things is, is that, and again, it's not a disrespect to county attorneys, but there's a lot of families and a lot of folks feel that that relationship is just too close together, that, that these are folks that they work and prosecute cases together. That's just natural. And folks are ethical. But a lot of these families... Um, and advocates just just feel like if you can remove what can be perceived bias from this, that maybe that will happen because there, you know, this is unprecedented. There had never been a white officer tried in Minnesota for the death of a black man, and let alone convicted. And I think the expectation now is is that we should have a separation there, and we should have someone who's not directly tied to the people who are involved. So I don't know if it's about setting up precedents. I think it's about restoring people's trust in the system because I think there was a, a, a sigh of relief. And it's not that there's, anybody feels, you know, pleasure in, in, in a conviction, but they feel a sense of justice and they feel a sense of accountability. And that's the part people are looking for. Those were the words you used. You said it assures accountability when uh, it was announced that uh, Keith Ellison would take on the second race involved, uh, second uh, case, I should say, involving Dante Wright. Yeah, and and just to be clear, um, Katie Wright and Aubrey, they brought their other son Dallas, and and they were kind enough. They had breakfast with my wife and and my children, who were their kids' age, um, and and she said it. It wasn't that I don't distrust. I don't think you know a, a mother in grief. She said I just want 
accountability and justice to be served. Those were words she used and, and felt like that Attorney General Ellison was the person to do that. So I think as a state, and I would argue as a nation, we might want to th- rethink how we do these, where it's police involved, how you have special prosecutors do it to have people believe. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm not passing judgment or, or saying that there's a bias. Some of it is just the inherent nature of people saying, well, how can you have the person convict you know, prosecute when they work together so closely all of these years. And and I don't know necessarily what the answer to that is. I just know that the community, especially when it involves a police-involved shooting, feels much more comfortable if it's a third party or an independent prosecutor. A year later, talk to us, uh, talk to our communities about civil unrest. How, where do we go from here? How do we heal these fissures that have taken place, not just in the last year, but for for decades. Decades or centuries. I, I think that's the thing to acknowledge it. I, One of the things I've heard a few people say, and I, I think we could use more of, um, showing grace to one another in, this, in these moments, but a realization that um, systemic racism has now, if you will, gone mainstream, that people understand it's real. And I, I say there's a lot of folks that, that don't have a, a, a mean bone or a you know, anything in their body to think that way. But if your life experience doesn't show you this, when you listen to a, a black mother say, I worry when my son goes to football practice, doesn't matter if he's a 4 student, doesn't matter if she's a doctor, doesn't matter where they come from. That is a reality. And I think um, thinking that way and, and, and where we go and how we, how we reimagine what we're going to do. And there's work to be done. Um, we need to, um, we need to see some reforms to make sure that these no-knock warrants and some of those. Mm-hmm. But we need to be honest with ourselves. Um, a lot of this starts before a child's even born. A black mother dies in childbirth at a rate far greater than a white mother does. Those, right. are, those are health inequities, uh, educational inequities, home ownership, business ownership, some of those things. This gives us an opportunity to, to, to make that case if there's a shared humanity here, and it really is about everybody succeeding. We have to be conscious about how we're, we're making changes to that. Let's talk finally. We're, I know we're running out of time. I'm getting uh, the side eye here on my left. But uh, you're, here, you're here in a community. You're on the second floor of a building that was shot out by just uh, wanton crime in our communities, yeah. not once but twice. We've had three young people lo- uh, shot, critically injured, one uh, a six-year-old right. young girl losing her life. I know that you don't have direct uh, purview over this type of uh, these instances in our communities. But what would be your comment uh, uh, to these young people? Uh, how can we get them help? Where do we start to put the Band-Aid or even uh, revive the patient uh, who is a community? We, we yes. heard from Marcus uh, Hunter, a graduate of De La Salle High School, who was going to go to college in Arizona. And he said he feared just walking down the street yeah. because of the violence in his community here in the north side. Where do we go from here? How do we quell the violence? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to thank the community leaders, we Jerry McAfee and others who are stepping up. It comes out of a lot of the the black churches have been a, a key role of that. And we can hold two competing thoughts. While we're looking at making reforms around police, um, we need security in our neighborhoods. We We need to make sure we can hold two thoughts that you shouldn't be shot for having an air freshener in your car and you should not be shot walking to your car after going to a business and and we need to make sure that those um 
those two are held together at the same time as we focus on reform, but with an understanding, we have to give opportunities to these young people. We have to steer them before they get to this point. We have to be, I think it was Lewis King saying to me today, is there's those that will take opportunity, there's those that need to be encouraged to take a little more opportunity, and then there's those that we may have to take and re-educate a little bit on that. And so Mm -hmm. he's making the case that there are going to be folks that that may violate and may try and bring crimes. And we need to do everything we can to prevent that. But if they do, we need to stop it. We can't have communities living in fear. And I think the one thing that the state does is is partnering. You're right. These are local issues and all that. But if there's help that we can provide, if there's, if there's data that we can provide, and then I think the one reason I would appeal to state legislators and the state as a whole, this is how we think about our budgets. Those budgets are moral documents. We have an opportunity to recover from COVID. We're going to have in about three weeks a whole bunch of young kids that we need to have places for them to go. We need to have jobs for them to work. We need things to keep their idle hands working and show that we care. And so I I think it's a combination of that. And I think we get into these easy talking points about, you know, the, the, we know that we need public safety. We know we need to reimagine it. We know we need to be safe. We know we need to have those reforms, but it really comes down to is we have to value every one of those kids. Give them an opportunity. Make sure they feel safe. And if they go astray, let's try and catch it as early as we can and, and get them on a better path. And and if we have to, we may have to take some of them off the streets for a while. That's what we do. But let, let's understand they're going to come back home. And so we should really focus on that. We should focus on restorative justice. We should focus on what it means in community. We've talked a, a lot of topics, uh, about a lot of topics today. Fifteen months, a lot of things have happened in your administration what do you want Minnesotans and those who are listening right now around the country, what do you want people to say when we come to the end of your four years of, as uh, leading the state of Minnesota? What do you expect or would like for people to say about the Tim Walls administration? Well, I'd like to show that, have them say that they showed humanity and they were willing to humbly be part of solutions. Um, I, I really do believe that. I think I ran on this idea of one Minnesota. I still believe that. And what I said at that time was, is it doesn't mean we all live the same lives, but we work across these these uh, lines of differences that everybody feels like this is a place for them. They're safe. They're valued. They have a chance to succeed and thrive. And I'd like them to say that um, they listened, learned, and they showed humanity, and, and they made this state a little better. We've only got 30 seconds left. What would you say as we look out the window to the business owners who have boarded up windows still, who are some uh, looking up the street who will not be able to come back? What do you say to the business owners, the heartbeat of our community? Yeah, well, first of all, we we have a budget. My expectation is in the budget agreement we made, there's $150 million to rebuild these streets. I said this was a disaster, much like a flood or a tornado. Um, These businesses here are the heartbeat, as you said. They're also the opportunities. They're the dreams of those families. Uh, We need to make sure that that we're there to support and to help them. And we need to know that, that COVID did not hit everybody the same. We see in the paper every day that large Fortune 500 companies did incredibly well. And we need to make sure that when we do policies, it's not to give tax credits to the Fortune 500 company that made massive profits. It's the businesses you see on the street, Sammy Sandwiches and others that are out there. You're making me hungry. (laughs) Get on down there. (laughs) Ken, I thank you enough for being with us. Everyone, Governor Tim Walls, governor of the state of, I'm going to say the great state of Minnesota. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Freddie.